to Alice and I, of course, he and Doreen are great friends. We praise the Lord for that. And our fellowship in the Lord is very sweet. But the messages he's been bringing have been a tremendous blessing to my heart and I'm sure to your heart. So, Charles, once more, I just thank the Lord for your ministry. Praise the Lord. God bless you, Charlie. <clears throat> May we open our Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. Before I start to teach, I should like to chat for just a moment. We have only two more days in this series. I have been coming to this church for many years, ever since the days when you used to meet over there. And it is a great pleasure to be back opening the Word of God. Doreen speaks the Lord willing tomorrow morning and Friday, and that's it. And I speak tomorrow night and Friday night, and the conference comes to an end. I will remind you that these studies are in print, particularly those of you who are, have just joined us tonight for the first time in this series. You will find them there on the table outside. If you are interested particularly in Bible prophecy, the studies I would suggest are the one on Revelation, the one on Daniel, and the one called Bible prophecy, which takes you right from beginning to end. There are studies there of every single book of the Bible. This is intended to encourage God's people to study now, before I teach, I want to say a word to certain young people who are in the congregation right now. I want to give them a little lesson in geography. Did you young people know that the farther back you are in the auditorium, the easier it is to be naughty? That is a lesson in geography. Did you further know, and I love to do what I am now going to do, because some of our beloved pastors are so kind, I am not kind, that they do not do this. Did you young people who have searched out the distant regions tonight, did you know that from this pulpit it is possible for the pastor to see every single thing that goes on in this auditorium, downstairs and upstairs. Did you know that? So that when you do not have your Bible with you, he knows it. When you write a note to that girl, he knows it. When she fails to respond, he knows it. <laughs> Everything that's going on, I thought I might just as well say that tonight. Why do I do it? Primarily for your own sake. When you come to a Bible conference, bring your Bible, come ready to think and to study, or else, do you know what? Stay home. Amen. If that sounds too rough to anybody, I'll see you later. We're studying the epistle to the Romans. You know, every Christian should know that in all probability the Apostle Paul, as I said the other night, wrote more than one half the books of the New Testament. Out of 27 books, presumably, he wrote 14, that's more than one half. But you ought to be able to do this. You ought to be able to subdivide Paul's writings, his earliest writings, First and Second Thessalonians in a class all by themselves. Then comes a series of great theological masterpieces. Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. That's where we are now. Then there is a third series where he was under house arrest with his left wrist chained to the wrist of a Roman soldier. These are sometimes called the prison epistles because he was under house arrest. 
Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, then at the very end, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and in all probability, Hebrews comes there. Now we, this week, are studying one of the great doctrinal masterpieces of the Bible. In that second major category, the epistle to the Romans, there are 16 chapters. In the first five chapters, this question is answered. How may a sinner who by nature is separated from a righteous God, how may he have fellowship with a righteous God? How may he be saved? How may he ultimately get to heaven? The answer, justification by faith alone, apart from the deeds of the law. We are saved not by our own works, but exclusively by our faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. That's the theme of the first five chapters. Now we turn to chapter 6. Will you please look at verse 1? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, as I intimated in the previous message? What Paul is here saying is this. Perhaps there were some in the Roman assembly who began to figure somewhat as follows. Paul, are you teaching us that salvation is all of grace? Yes, that the very fact that I'm a sinner affords Almighty God an opportunity to display his grace? Yes. Then someone possibly said, if that's the case, why don't I continue in sinning now that I'm saved? This will afford God more and more opportunities to exhibit his grace. And thus I shall be doing the Almighty a favor. Shall we continue in sin, now that we're saved? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, the theme now before us is not justification by faith alone. We've had that in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. The theme now relates to the life of victory in the soul of the individual who has been justified by faith. Daily victory, now that I'm saved, how may I live from day to day to the greater glory of God? I was a Presbyterian minister for 23 years. I am not a Presbyterian minister now. Entirely independent of man, 100% dependent upon God. Praise the Lord. But you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the 1640s in England is a pretty good document. Any creedal statement is a value only as it reflects the teachings of the Word of God. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I was brought up on this. Oatmeal for breakfast in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's right. What is the chief end of man? I learned that when I was five years old. What is the chief end of man? I don't know what that meant. Heads or tails. What is the chief end of man? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That should be our supreme objective in life now that we're saved that we might glorify God, that we might be well-pleasing to God. Remember what Paul wrote young Timothy? He wrote young Timothy, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he might please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now that I am justified, my assignment 24 hours a day is to be pleasing to God. Now that is the theme before us. Will you please turn to chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Romans seven fifteen. For that which I do, 
I allow not, 7.15, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Chapter 7, verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Did you ever have that experience? Don't raise your hand. I want to do this, but I don't do it. I don't want to do that, but I do it. Now, this is the theme. It is possible for God's people who've been received as righteous, welcomed as righteous, it is possible for them to have victory from hour to hour in their daily lives. If there's any Christian in this congregation tonight who's leading a life of defeat, it's not the fault of God. God wants every single one of us, and that, that goes for you lads upstairs as well. God wants every single one of us who loves the Lord Jesus to be living from hour to hour to the greater glory of God, to be pleasing to God. Paul, will you please give us a secret? Life is getting tougher and tougher. The temptations are becoming more and more insidious. Paul, what is the secret now that I am justified what is the secret of a life that adorns the doctrine I profess? Well, let's find out. In the first place, in the first place, Paul tells us, there is something we've got to know. Will you please turn back to chapter 6 with your pencil in your hand? I hope that you have a copy of the Bible which you can mark. Do you have a copy of the Bible which you can mark, don't get a pencil that's too sharp, or you'll underline Romans 6 and you'll come out in the gospel according to Mark. That's not what you want. But I hope you have a Bible. Will you please look now, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. What's the first word? No. Verse 6, what's the first word? Knowing. Verse 9, what's the first word? Knowing. Verse 16, what's the first word? Chapter 7, verse 1, what's the first word? Now look up from your hymn books, will you please? Amen. We will now sing the doxology. Do you know what that word doxology means? I have never thought of it until just now. I will now tell you what it means. Doxe in Greek means glory. Logos means a word. Words concerning the glory of God. Doxology. Amen. Now I'm going to teach you some words concerning the glory of God. There is obviously something we've got to know. How do we know that? We just underlined it in Romans chapter 6. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 16, Romans 7, 1. There's something we've got to know. Now, what is it that we've got to know? I hope that you are wide awake. I hope that your mind is really ready to move. Because I'm going to read quickly now. Don't get left behind. Will you kindly find, as I read along, any word which speaks of death or burial or crucifixion. I'll show you what I mean. Will you please turn to Romans chapter 6 verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin? Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Verse 7, For he that is dead. Verse 8, Now if we be dead with Christ. Verse 10, For him that he died, look up from your Bible, death, 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 burial, resurrection. Paul, 
Is there something we're supposed to know? Correct. What is it, Paul? It relates to spiritual death, 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 our identification with Jesus Christ in his death, his death. Now will you please watch for any word that speaks of resurrection or new life. Verse 4, please, right in the middle. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, please, right at the end. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 8, please, right in the middle. We believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 9, please, in the middle. Death hath no more dominion over him. Verse 10, please, in the middle. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Verse 11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look up from your Bibles, please. Death, 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 death. Our identification with Jesus Christ in his death. Now our identification with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Did you ever try to teach this to teenagers? I have done it many times. I'm answering the question now. How may a person who has been justified by faith, how may he live from day to day to the greater glory of God? Answer, there is first of all something he's got to know. Now what is it that he's got to know? He's got to know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, his precious blood washed away our sins. But he's also got to know that spiritually speaking, when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and was raised again, believers were linked to him, were identified with him, were joined to him, Spiritually, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, they are joined, linked now, to the risen Son of God. This is high theology. I have noticed through the years that whenever I teach this to teenagers, they understand the words and they are with me, but so far it means nothing to them. What has Paul been telling us so far? that believers are dead with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. Remember Colossians, remember the third chapter of Colossians, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Remember that passage which says, but ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. How many of you people ever heard the very well-known Bible teacher, William R. Newell? Did you ever hear William R. Newell? If you raise your hand to that, my friend, it sort of dates you. <laughs> William R. Newell wrote a commentary on Romans, on Revelation, on Hebrews. He went to heaven on Easter Sunday, 1956. He's the one who wrote the hymn, Years I Spent in Vanity and Pride. Would you like to know how he wrote it? How do I know this? He was my uncle. And he told me. He was about to preach in the Moody Church in Chicago years ago. He took an envelope out of his pocket. He took his pencil out. And he wrote, Years I Spent in Vanity and Pride. Wrote the whole thing. And on the way in, he went to the musician in charge of music at the Moody Church in Chicago, Mr. Daniel B. Towner. He said, Mr. Towner, please put this to music. I want the congregation to sing it. Like that, Mr. Towner put music, and you sing it now. Years I spent in... He was a real Bible teacher. He looked like the prophet Elijah, I think. I cannot prove this. I have never seen the prophet Elijah. But he was a tremendous Bible teacher. 
he also had a twinkle in his eye once in a while. What made me think of this? You're dead with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. He said to me once, he said, you know, a lady came up to me, a very nice lady, and she asked me the question that no lady should ever ask of a preacher. And I said, what was the question? I knew what was coming up. Oh, this nice lady came up and said, Mr. Newell, do you remember me? <laughs> never, never ask that. Why? You change your hats, you change your hair, do you change what not? It's impossible unless your husband is with you, then he's got a good chance. <laughs> oh, Mr. Newell, by the way, if we had time, I'd give you a half a dozen good answers to that question. But anyhow, this lady came up to him and... Um, so Mr. Newell told me, he said, so I looked that lady straight in the eye. I had the faintest idea who she was. And I said to her, Madam, are you saved? Yes, yes. Then he said, I heard you were dead. Her face blanched. And then he smiled and he said, but ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's not a very good way normally to answer somebody. But I just happened to think of it as I was teaching our identification with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We've got to know all this. But the teenager comes back and says, all right, I know all that, so what? When I wash the dishes tomorrow morning, I'm still going to lose my temper. I want to learn how to live from day to day to the greater glory of God and Paul tells us that there's something we've got to know. What's this all about? Well, the answer is very plain. The answer is this, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior, not only were your sins forgiven, not only did you start for heaven, praise the Lord, but you took up a new spiritual position from which victory is possible. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a fundamental law of life that a person's position often determines his practice. Where you are frequently determines how you act. I'll show you what I mean. Have you recently flown across the Grand Canyon. My wife and I do that frequently. Well, if it's daytime, and if that is your position, believe me, your position determines your practice. I don't know what your practice is. When I'm flying above the Grand Canyon, I'll tell you what that position does to me. I look out the window, I have two reactions. Number one, I hope that the captain is a Calvinist. You didn't hear that, I'm just as glad. Number two, if God be for us, who can be against? Amen. Amen. You see, your position, your position determines your practice. If you're in a submarine, if that's your position, if you are in a submarine, you don't normally get out for a walk. Why? Because now the teenagers are beginning to understand. Your position determines your practice. Back in 1951, I was teaching the Word of God in New Zealand. I've never been to Australia yet, but New Zealand, yes. And I forgot what I had been teaching for 25 years, that your position is supposed... In other words, they drive down the wrong side of the street, from our point of view. I rented a nice automobile. I took a look at that automobile. The steering wheel was on the wrong side. I got in. I forgot that your position is supposed to determine your practice. I went down the wrong side. I landed in the ditch. It is very important to know this. I just thought of this one. You're in Manhattan, subway, jam. Even your ethnic position, your national heritage, determines your practice. You're reading your newspaper. Right next to you, there's a gentleman from Tel Aviv. And over here on the other side, there's a gentleman from Formosa. And you're all reading. What happens? 
your eyes, because your ethnic possession determines your practice, your eyes go like this. See? And over on your right, your Hebrew friend is reading, his eyes are going like this. <laughs> and over here, over here, the gentleman Formosa, his eyes are going like this. Right, that's right, that's right. Why do I say this? Because your position is determinative of your practice. Now the Apostle Paul is going to show us by the use of two illustrations that we have a new position. What are these two illustrations? Will you please turn to chapter 6, verse 16. Here's our one illustration. It's the illustration of bondage, of slavery. Chapter 6, verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. Verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Look up from your Bible. Here's the first illustration. Before you were saved, you were in a position of bondage. Bondage. Bondage to the law, the whiplash of the law over you, bondage to sin. Then Jesus Christ, the emancipator, came. He freed you. Now you are in a new position. You are God's freed man. And because you have been emancipated, a new life opens up before you. You know, in the year of our Lord, 1520, Dr. Martin Luther wrote several little books which got him into trouble. One of these books had to do with the freedom of the Christian man. Martin Luther wrote that the Christian man is the freest of all men. Why? Because he is the bond slave of one alone, Jesus Christ. He is in a new position. Now the second illustration is the illustration of marriage. Will you please turn to chapter 7, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now what is Paul saying? That so far as marriage is concerned, when death intervenes, that changes everything. Now back to verse 4, please. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Look up from your Bible. That's a marriage illustration. Before you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, as it were, were married to the law, married to the works of the law. And the effect, the fruit of that was unrighteousness. Then you heard the gospel, you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now death has intervened. Christ's death on the cross, your identification with him in death, as a result now you are in a new spiritual position. You are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the heavenly bridegroom. You are part of the bride. This is your new position. But still the teenager comes up and says, I got it. I understand it. 
But how does that affect me now? Well, Paul tells us there's something we've got to know. There's something we've got to know. And that is we are linked. We are joined. We are identified with the crucified, buried, risen Son of God. This is our new position. We are now, as we'll quickly discover, we are now in Christ. That is our new position. That's a technical phrase. We are in Christ. Wonderful. Again and again in Paul's writings, he uses that little prepositional phrase, in Christ. It describes our new position. Listen to Ephesians. Listen to Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. See? In Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 1, 6, accepted in the beloved. 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 1, 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. 1, 13, in whom also ye believe. This is our new position now, and because we are in that new position, victory victory is possible. That's all he's saying now. That's all he's saying so far. Victory is possible. But now here comes the important question. Yes, Paul, I got it. Theologically, I understand that because I am joined to Christ, linked to the risen Christ, victory is possible. But Paul, tell me, how is this implemented now, this new position, in my daily life so that I do actually have victory from hour to hour? This I want. I want to live to the glory of God. It's one thing to know about my theological position, but how is that made real? Will you please turn to chapter 7, verse 18, Romans seven eighteen. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Look up from your Bible, the answer is not in the flesh. Romans 7.18 is a classic. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Do you young people know what Paul means by that? In my flesh. What does he mean by the flesh? He means by that the old nature which you and I inherited from Adam. That tendency, that bias in the direction of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every Christian still has that old flesh. That's the trouble. That's the trouble. And Paul says the answer, the secret of victory, is not in the flesh. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. It isn't a matter of saying, I'm going to try, 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 because if we do, we'll fail, 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 fail. You know why? Because the same will that makes the resolution is the will that breaks it. How is my new theological position in Jesus Christ made real? It's not through the energy of the flesh. I love to hear Doreen teach. As a matter of fact, Pastor, for the first time in history, I expect to come with her to her class tomorrow morning. Amen. Amen. I love to hear her teach. There's one thing that she says repeatedly, it is true. 
Oh, how true this is. We're coming to grips right now with the answer to the questions I've been raising. Here's what Doreen teaches. I love to hear her do it. So far as salvation is concerned, written across the heart of the sinner, total failure. You cannot save yourself. No, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I claim. That's for salvation. Total failure. Got it? But now that you are saved, so far as victory is concerned, so far as the flesh is concerned, the same two words, total failure, is written right across the flesh. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Every virtue you attain, every grace of character you display, is not of the flesh. It is of the Spirit. Now, how is our new position in Jesus Christ identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection? How is that made real? Will you kindly turn back to chapter 6, verse 13, and mark in your Bible the word, the word yield, Y-I-E-L-D, Romans six thirteen. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Will you please turn to chapter 8. Chapter 8 now. Chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now watch this next verse. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not after the flesh, but after the what? Spirit. Verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Look up from your Bible. The answer is very clear. Theologically, we must know that victory is possible. We've been linked. We've been joined to Jesus Christ. Now, how is that made real? That is made real as you and I, having no confidence in the flesh, actually yield to the blessed Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us, written across the flesh, total failure. But the Holy Spirit of God is 100% the secret of our victory from day to day. The moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, precisely at that moment the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell in your heart. The secret of victory is not in the energy of the flesh, Romans seven eighteen. It is 100% in my being yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. If there's a child of God in this auditorium tonight who's constantly defeated, if you're defeated, if you're defeated, if you're defeated, the answer is very simple. The Holy Spirit of God does not have his sway in your life. I was teaching this 25 years ago in North Carolina once. Did any of you ever know 
Dr. Robert C. McQuilkin, ever know him, president of Columbia Bible College, man of God? He was my very dear friend. He came up to me afterwards and said, do you mind if I make a suggestion? I was thankful for the suggestion. He said, whenever you say that, perhaps you better qualify it just a little. Say what? That if there's any believer here who's defeated, it is not the fault of the Holy Spirit of God. It's simply due to the fact that you are not yielded to the Holy Spirit. There's some area of your life which is not yielded. He said, if I were you, I would add a paragraph. I said, what's the paragraph? I respected him. He said, you better tell people, you better tell people that they might consider themselves to be Christians, but if they are living in sin and they expect to continue to live in that sin and they are not convicted that they are living in sin and it is their purpose to continue to live there, then that means that the Holy Spirit of God is not convicting them and that means that the Holy Spirit of God is not resident in their souls and that means they've never been saved in the first place. I'm talking now to genuine believers. I'm talking about a temporary defeat, not a purpose to live in sin. If you and I purpose to live in sin and the Spirit of God does not convict us, that means that the Holy Spirit of God is not in our hearts, which means we've never been saved in the first place. But if we are genuine believers and we are tripped and we slip and we are defeated, the answer is not that the Holy Spirit is not, doing, is not able to do his work. The answer is that we have not given him a chance. We have not yielded to him every area of our lives. Paul, I think I understand. There's something I've got to know. I am joined to Christ. His resurrection power is available. I got it. But now, if this is to be implemented, then from hour to hour, my life must be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. And this is nothing way up in the stratosphere. This is right down where I live. First thing in the morning, down on my knees. You teenagers remember this. Make it a habit. Every morning, right out of bed, onto your knees. Praying in Christ's name and once more turning over your whole life to the blessed Holy Spirit of God. I said that once to 600 teenagers and the boy shot up his arm like this. Yes. He said, I can't get down on my knees. I thought he was a cripple. I said, why not? He said, I sleep on the upper bunk. I said, all right, put your foot in his face, but get down. Amen. Right. And throughout the day, as I am yielded to the Holy Spirit of God, you know, friend, I have taught this for many years, but now I'm going to make it even more practical. Would you like a good test as to whether the Holy Spirit of God really controls you? You want a good test? You want a real one? A good test is this. If the Holy Spirit of God is in control of your life so that you're having victory, you know what else happens? He begins to produce his fruit. Oh, don't get so excited about the gifts. It's the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. This is the test. Is love. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering, joy. Is there any Christian here tonight who's lost your joy? You lost your joy? Remember the story of David, the 51st Psalm? David had been guilty of two crimes, adultery and murder. David cried out, O Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Something had come between David and his God, sin. He lost his joy. He confessed it. He confessed it. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The test as to whether the Holy Spirit of God really is in control is in his fruit, Galatians 5.22. Still have that joy in your soul? If you haven't, not the fault of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You know this Bible conference, we have only two more nights. I realize this. I have one more paragraph tonight, that's all. What have we been discussing so far? Number one, how to be saved. Thank you, Paul. I got it. I got it. As long as I draw breath, I'll know that the first five chapters of Romans tell the guilty, hell-deserving sinner how to start for heaven. I got it. But now that I'm saved, Paul, how can I live from day to day to the glory of God? I'm joined to Jesus Christ, the source of power, the Holy Spirit of God, as I keep yielded to him, makes this thing real. Real. Amen. Let's all unite in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we worship thee tonight. We thank thee for Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior, and for the blessed Holy Spirit of God. How we praise thee for him. No, Lord, if there are some dear Christians in this assembly tonight who know perfectly well that way down deep in their hearts there's something that's come between them and the blessed Holy Spirit of God, some area that's not thoroughly yielded, but the Spirit has been convicting them. They know that this thing must go. I pray thee, Lord, that as the result of our opening the word of God tonight, the Spirit may make this thing real, that there may be confession, that we may confess our sins and once more put them under the blood of Calvary and claim restoration. We thank thee for David. Cry it out, restore unto me, O Lord, the joy of thy salvation. The same David wrote, he restored toreth my soul. How we thank thee for this. Before I pronounce the benediction, I would like to say this. If there's any dear Christian here tonight you've really been saved, you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, but there's some shadow, some shadow in your life, and you know it perfectly well, some area of unconfessed sin, and the Holy Spirit of God has been convicting you. He has been. And the very best you know how you want to confess it and, and claim that wonderful restoration. Make a fresh start with the Lord. I would love to pray for you. The pressures and temptations of this life are getting more and more powerful. We've got to encourage one another in the things of God. You're a believer, you love the Savior, but there's some shadow down in there. Nobody knows anything about it except you and the Lord. And it's nobody else's business, but it's come between you and the working of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. That same Spirit has convicted you, and you want to confess it to God. You want to put it under the blood. You want a fresh start. You want restoration. I would love to pray for you. While all of our heads are bowed in this place, if this applies to you, I would rejoice in praying with you as you take God literally, confess this thing, and claim that restoration. Would you let me pray for you that God would make this real? Anybody in this house of God who is a genuine believer who needs that, will you let me pray for you? Wherever you're seated, while all of our heads are bowed, will you just lift up your hand? I'd love to pray for you. Yes, God bless you. God bless you. Something's come between, and you know it, and you really want to confess it to God. 
Are there others who would like to say, please include me in that prayer? Yes, God bless you. I'll pray for you. We have to encourage one another. Are there others? Yes, God bless you. Yes, the Lord bless you. Are there others? You and I can leave this place with absolute assurance of restoration, fresh start with the Lord. We're believers, but something's come between. This is the last time I'm going to ask it. Are there others? Quickly raise your hand. Yes, God bless you. God bless you. I'll wait quietly here. This how other others? Yes, the Lord bless you. We're in no hurry if the whole Yes, God bless you. If the Spirit of God is working right now, we're in absolutely no hurry. I want to pray that every last one of you will really receive the blessing of the Lord as you confess this thing to your Savior and put it under the blood and claim restoration. Are there others? All of our heads bowed. Yes, the Lord bless you, dear. I'll pray for you. Are there others? I'll wait just a moment. The Spirit of God is touching you. Slip up. Yes, God bless you. I'll pray for you. All over the auditorium. Are there others? We need to encourage each other in these areas. I'll wait just a moment. Spirit of God, please take 100% control of me. There's been a shadow there. I confess it. I believe. 1 John 1 9. I'm going to put it under the blood and claim restoration. Are there others? I'll wait just a moment. Our Father, in Christ's name, I praise thee that we can help one another in this area. For all those all over the auditorium who raise their hands, oh, God bless them. May this thing be definite. May it be specific. Whatever that item is, Lord, it's between the individual and thee. Lord, may it really be a hard confession now, a hard confession. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, O God. A confession. May they put it under the blood. May they remember that if we confess our sins, thou art faithful. O God, thank you for your faithfulness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then once more the joy of the Lord is our portion. We thank thee for thy word. May thy loving blessing be upon the people of God who've assembled tonight. And now, Father, wilt thou dismiss us with thy blessing in Christ's name. Amen. And we are dismissed. Amen.